Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership web series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your weekly ongoing host. I'm delighted to announce that last week we doubled our viewership. So thanks to all of you who are tuning in or tuning in again. And I might remind you that this weekly webcast series is also available in podcast format on all of your favorite podcast channels. So today I'm honored to announce that our guest in the studio is my sister from another mother and another father, Corey Kogan. Corey, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's an honor to be here. Delighted you're here today. The author of several of Franklin Covey's best-selling books, including most recently, The Five Choices, which has had phenomenal impact around the world. In many regards, you are Franklin Covey's global thought leader and expert on time management and productivity. So my sense is you're giving me probably little time today to make sure you go do <laughs> other things that are on your list. Right? Yes, but this is very important. It's now, big rock. You and I have been friends for a decade, so I'm excited to get some inciting, exciting tips from you today on how I even can be a little more productive, given we know that this adage has become true that maybe beyond love and um, companionship, time is our most valuable asset. Right? Correct. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yeah, looking forward to it. As I do each week, I like to open with a little bit about your journey, you know, how you got here today. I know you're from New York originally, so you probably took an Uber. Um, but what's been your journey? How did you get into the studio today from where you've been professionally? Well, it's been, you know, it's been interesting because, uh, you know, I don't have a PhD in, or a master's or anything like that. I grew up on the streets of New York and yeah. really it's what they say. Not really, literally. Not literally, <laughs> but uh, just a lot of hard work and, you know, Stephen Covey has said some great mentors that saw some potential and really helped yeah. me along the yeah. way. So um, just a lot of hard work in New York at a television station started there. Um, and, uh, you know, went up uh, to the Pocono Mountains and got into real estate and sales mm. and sales management and then from there into operations. And again, one of the leaders there, there saw, saw something in me, mm. a president of the company. And, uh, you know, when you're either good in sales or bad in sales, they uh, you end up doing some training for other people. And so I ended up being his training director and mm. ended up in Tucson at a corporate headquarters of uh, my past company. Mm -hmm. and worked my way up to the executive VP of operations. Mm -hmm. We were a Covey organization. Mm -hmm. We believed in from the top, you model from the top. And so um, I was a facilitator for our seven habits and the five mm -hmm. for uh, you know our other time management offerings. And you were a client of ours for I years before you joined client, the firm. Yeah, yeah. and uh, really just a lot of experience along the way. And then with great honor, became part of Franklin Covey about 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, and he here we are after a lot of different uh, opportunities with Franklin Covey to help out and partner uh, to be able to get to this point. In fact, you moved from being a client facilitator to being one of our senior consultants. Correct. And then from that, you moved in and were tapped to be the productivity practice leader globally for us. That gave you the opportunity to write several books, of which Five Choices was kind of your seminal work that you co-authored with Lana Renee and Adam Merrill. Take a minute and tell us kind of what's the premise behind your book? What was your passion for writing it? And are there a couple of just kind of key takeaways for those who have read it and have forgotten or want to buy it? What are some of the key kind of actionable topics in the five choices? Um, with the five choices and just uh, you asked about my path, you know, I brought a business background as an EVP yeah. of an organization, bringing a business background and really knowing what reality is out there and how hard this stuff is and, and being able to take some of our principles and blend that with, with business leads to what some of the key concepts are uh, that aren't concepts, they're practical applications. People really need to understand that and put that into play. 
So some of the key things here are really understanding that in the 21st century, it's not just about time management anymore. We're knowledge workers. Right. We're not labor, you know, it's not about labor and manual work anymore that we're measuring. And so really just the whole premise of I need to make the highest value decisions, I need to have really focused attention in the midst of the craziness, and I got to have the energy to do all of that is probably the number one thing or the mindset that people really need to understand as to how they need to think about their time. So that's one of the main things to even start this conversation. And value their time, right? And value I mean, their time. In, in many ways, I kind of see you as the Susie Orman of time. What Susie is to money, you are to time. What, one thing that Susie Orman taught me was about how important it is to value your money. If you look in your money, in your wallet, is your money all crumpled up and it means it's not all straightened up and all facing the right way? She, she says, you don't value that. And so I've taught my boys to, to, to value their money. They iron their money, their paper money, their allowance. They actually iron it and kind of get it all straight because I want them to value and appreciate it. In many ways, you have a similar philosophy on time is about kind of understanding how you're using it and is it uh, leveraged in the best return, right? Yes, and the way I frame that is that there's 1,440 minutes in the day, okay. and it's like a bad checking account because you get that every day. Once the clock starts ticking, you can't get it back, right. but you have to allocate it in the right ways to know how you're using every minute of that time. So very similar thinking. Yeah. What challenge do you find people who read the book or clients of yours, are there common challenges everybody's wrestling with around their time management, their own productivity, and those minutes you just mentioned? Yeah, they don't have enough time to do, to, to, to do it all. They um, feel unfocused because they're being pulled in a million directions. And by the end of the day, what they're saying is, oh gosh, I was so busy, but I have no idea what I got done. Those are the three things that I hear most. I mean, it's common because we all have like endless decisions we can make, right? There's constant demands on our pressure. Most of us now are in control of our time in the workplace unless we're a more junior hourly employee, the biggest opportunity and the biggest risk reward is the endless number of decisions we can make. A premise in your book also is making wise, high return decisions. So it's about decision attention and energy management. Decision is the backbone of that. And mm -hmm. yes, theoretically, we should be making high value decisions. It's not gonna happen on its own. And people really need to get intentional very conscious about what's most important. People have been saying this for years, but behaviorally, this is the only thing that's going to save people, is if they make, they have to think about what are the most important things that I need to accomplish, and throughout the day, consciously think about, am I making the right decision to get to where, to, mm -hmm. uh, on the most important things that mm -hmm. I need to do? The problem is to your brain, from a neurological point of view, which is part of the conversation around the five choices, every single email, text, interruption is a decision that your brain is making. And because we- Or a distraction up, away from the decisions you should make. Or a distraction right? away from it. But by and large, even subconsciously, they're all decisions. Yeah. And so there's so many of those things coming at you that you're pretty much in survival mode. So your brain starts to handle them sequentially. And you're just sort of trying to climb out all day long. So by the end of the day, even if you had the idea of, oh, I need to get that project done, at the end of the day, you're stuck because you haven't trained your brain yet right, right. to really say, hmm. no, wait, ah, mm, and, and stay focused on, 
on the, on, the, on the end game. That's an insight, a neurological insight, right? Because most people don't know that's happening to them. Correct. Including me, we just kind of fall into that daily trap of living life and not realizing we're never kind of climbing out of that pit. You, you, no, it, it can be intentional, and you're not always going to get it right. This is not about, hey, do it, you know, think about it, it will work. It won't. Right. But until you, and really this goes to choice too, around your roles, and again, all of this is very concrete. This is not a nice to have. And even in my own personal life, I've had to rethink some of my personal roles along with my work roles to say, who do I want to be in a particular role? Like, you're a dad, and you and I have had this conversation. You're a dad, and some of your decisions, when you really think about the emotional connection of your responsibility as a father, that's what's going to, and you, you really hone in on that, that's what's going to help you make better decisions. So my role Beyond is... Beyond stopping the bleeding. Because it usually involves bleeding of some No, I can't even do that. <laughs> but for me with my work or whatever, you have to be really clear on who you are in that role, yes. who you want to be yeah, today, right. not 10 years from now, but yeah, right now, right. every day. And as those emails are coming in, and as people are saying, can you help me? Even though you want to be a team player, that will force you or give you what you need to intentionally sometimes go, you know what, I can't do that because I need to do that in order to achieve that. So that, and your, your benchmark is, that every night you should be able to say, okay, I was really busy today, but I got that one thing yeah. done yeah. that I really needed to get done, and I got it done well. Because the other thing that's a problem out there are people getting things done, but they're not getting them done with quality. They're just barely getting them out there sort and of water paying skiing the price, across all the options. Paying the price later, it's yeah. very expensive. Corey, this is an important question to me, and I'll bet many of our senior leaders. In today's workplace, the vast majority of people have control over how they spend their time, especially those who might be more highly compensated. And I know for a fact from my experience in, this, in our own company, I report to the CEO, as well as other clients, that a top concern of senior leaders is not as much about their employees' character or their competence. It's more about how they're spending their time, how they're choosing to dedicate their time, and are they working focused, dedicated on the organization's top business priorities. I know because our chairman, Bob, has told me one of his biggest, I wouldn't say concerns, but sort of um, um, opportunities is amongst all that Scott can do or could do, is he spending his precious time and hopefully talent on the company's priorities? What advice would you give senior leaders to coach, encourage, put in systems so that this massive you know, talent pool of well-intended people are focused on the business's top priorities. Well, I'll tell you what the damage is by not, and maybe that will help. Because I see senior leaders around the world who never stop, and or have a million good ideas, uh, and try to do them all, or are adrenaline junkies. Mm -hmm. And the real output of that is then talking to the people that report to them that don't know what behavior they're supposed to be doing. So because the boss is moving a million miles an hour. They're modeling that. 24 right. hours a day, yeah. texting on the weekends, the employees are completely stressed out because they feel like they have to reach that same bar. And it's a big problem unless there are guidelines and conventions that are put into place. Let me give you an example. Uh, 
I mean, because even if you think about it, even unconsciously, it's not, I, I like to say, leaders do not wake up in the morning going, how do I make them miserable today? Of course, of course. It just happens naturally, <laughs> right? So, but you don't intend it, but when you're busy texting an employee at 10 o'clock at night saying, hey, I need you to do this, with no guidelines, they're like, am I supposed to do it now? Am I, is it in the morning? And so they, they can't relax. You're not purposely doing it, you're mm. just getting it. So for me, I email on the weekend because I'm, I'm busy the, you know, during the week. But I have told my team, do not answer my emails on the weekend unless there's a code in there that says quadrant one. Hmm. And I don't think I've ever done that. Hmm. Um, so there has to be conventions in place. So I think that for senior leaders, if, they, if they're real, you know, they really think about what they're doing and think differently than others, and they think about, wait a minute, I need to really model doing the most important things, not everything, so that my team does the same, you will find productivity increase manyfold. You're really putting responsibility back on the leadership. I'm positive yeah. it's the leader. It has right. to start from the top uh, because I've seen it both ways. I have seen leaders that really manage their time where they have work-life balance. And it trickles down throughout the organization. And the yeah. whole organization will work harder for that person. I have somebody very close to me who took a $10 million organization right now up to $75 million uh, who gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning, can deadlift you know, 135 you know, pounds or, or whatever it might be, um, has created a birthday at the, the start of their new year, um, encourages, has her family pictures all over her office, works like a fiend, and encourages her people to mm. do the same. They would kill for her, but it's because she's so managed in her time mm. uh, and is such a great model of productivity that they do the same and overwork, even though she doesn't want them to, because that le as a leader, um, she just knows how to show them how to do work life Sounds balance. like she's the model of intentionality, of being very totally intentional with her intentional. time and her communication as well. And it's show, I mean, you can't do 10 million to 70 million in less than 10 years. To take that concept a step further, I'd like you to spend some time talking about quadrant one and quadrant two in just a moment. Uh, my sense is, like me, there's a lot of people out there that spend a lot of their time in quadrant one and kind of urgency addiction, it gives you validation. They wanna be in quadrant two. They get branded as being in quadrant one and they struggle, I struggle, on how do you balance the adrenaline rush and the productivity of getting things done in an urgent quadrant one mode with a real yearning and desire for your brand and reputation to also be in quadrant two, a little more deliberate planning, because every organization has both, right? I mean, every organization has some level of urgency addiction. Everyone wants to be a little more proactive with their time. I'll bet I've described most of the world. Correct. What advice from all your wisdom would you give people some actionable things they can do to balance that out? Again, I think, you know, I think pain moves people to action. Yeah. Here's what I'll say to you, and you can take it or leave it. When you wait to the last minute to do anything, 100% of the time, you are not doing your best work. And that has terrified me over the years, because I have an ego as big as this room. So I want my work to be great. But I know, and you think about, I, how many times have you ever done this where, you know, something isn't due right now? This is the thing, right? It's like, right. eh. 
I don't want to start it because right. there's no adrenaline. There's no dope. It's right. dope. You're right. drug addicted, to be yeah. honest with you, right now. But we can change that. It's like, oh, all right, I'll start it. And you start something, and because you have time, you, you put it away for a bit, and you open it up a week later, and you go, who wrote that piece of garbage, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and you start over. But imagine when you wait to the last minute to do something, you don't have the time to check it or rethink mm -hmm. it. You, it's just your first- Right, get it out, get it done. Get it out. I am terrified of that. So I've rewired my brain, because that's what habits are about. You're rewiring intentionality into routine. I've rewired my brain. I will not wait to the last minute to do something that I need quality in, because I know it's not going to be my best work. So that's, that should be the number one thing that you do. And, and I also want to say, Quadrant one is a reality, and for people in the audience that don't know what quadrant one is, it is the combination, when you put a matrix together, of, of uh, urgent and important. So it could be crisis, it could be last minute, right now, and all that kind of stuff. It is a reality. We're always going to have it's that. It's what gets rewarded in organizations. It is what, get, it's what gets rewarded, and everybody knows these kinds of junkies. You know the crisis-oriented person, that everything's you know, an alarmist you know, kind of thing. I've met him. And <laughs> so what you have to do is you have to step back from that and say, how, how do I say no to that? And how do I stop creating those yeah. fires myself? Because I've also heard you say that it's a leader's key responsibility to keep her, her or his team out of quadrant one. That one of your key leadership roles is preventing, that's not always going to happen, but preventing your team from modeling and being in the same kind of urgency addiction as you might be sometimes. As we said earlier, and sometimes it happens by accident. So I always ask leaders to think like this. When I say to them, now that you know the time matrix, the combination of important and urgent, I want you to think about when have you accidentally put somebody into quadrant one or quadrant mm. three? Because you're not, it's what I said before, you're not saying, oh, I'm gonna send so in this last minute just because I wanna see them squirm. You're just, so I'll hear things like, oh my goodness, you know, I just realized when I wait till the last minute to do a project and then I throw it over the yeah, fence, yeah. I'm throwing them into a terrible place, but you're not even thinking about I it. I once read on someone's door in the company a sign that said something like, your lack of planning doesn't constitute an emergency on my part. That's, right? It, that's exactly yeah. right. The other one I hear a lot about is drive-bys. So you drop into somebody's office and say, hey, you know, can you do this? Or can you help me with this? You're, there's always going to be t reasons to do that. But again, it's where we started. This is about being intentional. So before you throw something over the fence or before you walk into somebody's office and say, hey, can you help me fix this? It's, do you really need to do it right now? Mm. Could you ask them maybe if this is a, or change the time? So leaders- Goes back to being intentional. It's totally right? I mean, intentional. Yeah. And, and again, sometimes it's all hands on deck. We got to do this now. But when you can be intentional to say, how can I help keep my team out of quadrant one all, at least part of the time, you will be doing them a great service and their productivity and their engagement will go sky high. Corey, talk more about the, the role that values play in your day and your time and your decision-making, attention-making. Give us a quick primer on, on your point of view on, on values and, and how it relates to how you spend your time. So I think that, not I think, but I know, values attach to who, who you want to be. 
right? So your values could be family, your values could be a strong work ethic. Right. And, and particularly how we do it in the five choices is to say, what are the few most important roles in your life that are really important to you right now? And again, I'm not talking about mm -hmm. you know, your mission life. I'm talking about every day so that when you go to sleep, you feel like you fulfilled your values through your roles. So again, I want to be a good mother. I want to be a good dog mother. I want my, you know, my role as um, you know, a vice president. Mm -hmm. how, all of that, I'm thinking about how do I be the best? My work ethic, my values, all of that, that drives what we say is right, you know, what's my role statement? What, your brain needs targets. Hmm. So when it comes to your values. And otherwise you're just bouncing from every from, concept you, or email or. Your brain right. needs structure. For you to be intentional, it needs a process to hook onto. And so when we say, what are the few most important roles? This is choice two. What are the few most important roles in your life that you can really put that focus on? And to be able to say, as a vice president, my role statement, my value, is that I'm going to strengthen the capacity of people inside and outside mm -hmm. our organization to reach the levels of competency that are most important to them to reach their goals. It sounds, that, that to me, when I know that's my role statement, or yours as a dad, or mine as a parent, or as a daughter, now with my father at 94, that's a big one to me of family value, to say I'm gonna make sure that I talk to my father at least once every other week mm. and see him once every three months. So now, that's a value, and, and I'm thinking, all my decisions are based on- You're rewiring your brain, I mean, totally. kind of around that. But every decision I make during the day is, is that, is, is that assisting me in achieving my role? And if it's not, should I be helping this person for the 17th mm -hmm. time, should I be, or not? And so values and role, roles of who you are, really, without okay. them, yeah. you, have no t you have no decision making or, or attention management whatsoever. Corey, I know that you've spent now the better part of a decade in your research for the book and for the solution uh, studying neuroscience. Yes. And I might even say you're a bit of a hack neuroscientist yourself right. now because you know a lot about that. Uh, what have you learned about the role the, that the brain plays in your life, personally, professionally, around productivity and time management. Give us some tips and some maybe some insights we don't know. Okay, really important is think about 120 years ago in the industrial age. It was the optimization, Six Sigma, you know, ISO, all of those. It was the optimization of manual labor. How do you optimize hands in the back right. with tooling to be able to, you know, create the systems? Today, the knowledge worker, the optimization has to be of the brain. And so it's so amazing because just really quick, there's two parts to the brain. You've got the reactive part back here, the proactive part mm -hmm. up here. This keeps you alive. It's survival. Right. It routinizes everything. It, it wants to, you brush your teeth, you put your pants on, it just automatically does it. The front of your brain is the intentional part where you are, you know, you will make choices, you will make decisions. And the great news is that the more intentional you are, the more, and, and the, your brain this cells will- This is your prefrontal will, cortex. Prefrontal cortex, and your brain cells, this is called Hebb's Law, uh, your brain cells will fire and rewire, Hebb's Law. Fire and rewire, so the more intentional I am about changing my behavior, 
uh, the more you will rewire and eventually it will go back here and become a routine. Is Unconscious that, is that the, competence. Is that the contact, is that the concept of neuroplasticity? Is that yes, your brain that can is can neuroplasticity. And, yeah. It can learn, it can rewire. It just, you have to become intentional and practice. Wow. Uh, connect that to this concept of dopamine that I hear a lot okay. about. The, I, I heard a podcast a year ago or so around uh, kind of the new drug, if you will, about the dopamine squirt, the author called it around uh, your mobile phone. And, and he went on to talk about the, the ergonomic design that cell phone companies you know, have when it comes to the handheld device and our addiction to that and checking your email. What have you learned about that, the kind of the neurology of dopamine and technology? And what are some tips you can give me and people like me, there's at least one out there, that are maybe embarrassingly or subconsciously addicted to their mobile devices? So dopamine is not new. Dopamine is from way back in prehistoric times and uh, dopamine and cortisol actually. And mm -hmm. dopamine is a neurotransmitter that when it squirts, it goes right to the reward center. It's pure pleasure. Yeah. So any, any drug addict out there, it's the same thing, it's dopamine. And so when there's something pleasurable, we get a jolt of dopamine. And so with our phone, and, and here's the thing about the brain. The, the pr two main principles about the brain that connect to that is that your brain, first of all, acts on your survival. It keeps you alive. Mm -hmm. uh, that's number, number one. Number two is reward. It looks for reward. So it looks for any danger first, and it looks for reward second. Mm. Here's the thing with your cell phone. When it's over there. Which it is, and I'm a little annoyed right now. It's right. upset. <laughs> and it buzzes. That's the unknown. That's danger to the brain. Huh. That's number one. Number two that comes into your mind is, oh, somebody needs Someone me. Someone wants me. So right. it's a reward. Yes. Yeah, right. So it's danger and re it's a unbelievable cocktail that yes, is almost impossible yes. to break because it's acting on both principles of the brain. So again, yeah. you, uh, you know, and it's, and it's amazing because we are addicted to our phones. We all are. It takes it takes muscle building. So I just talked about this friend of mine who deadlifts, yeah. you know, 135 pounds. That takes a lot of work. It almost takes the same amount of work to build the mental muscle to set the phone aside. Here's what I find that, myself as well, when I finally let go of it and I get over myself, that it's killing me, that it's over there, there's a sense of freedom and calm that comes over me and others. Because it's like, okay, this is cool. And suddenly my focus uh, on what we're doing becomes clearer. Uh, I mean, it's really amazing. There's a facilitator I know. I really, when I saw this, I'm like, really? He, and I don't do this, and I don't recommend this for the audience out there, and, you know, I, I, except, I mean, you can, is when people would come into the room, he would have people put his self, their cell phones in a basket. Yeah. I'm not a big believer in that, but he did it. It was amazing. Once people got over, oh my God, I'm right. on my phone. Right. Once they got over it, and they knew on their breaks they can get it, their attention was so tremendous, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't believe it. So again, it, just, it takes conscious energy and muscle to say, you know what? There's no fire. I need, to I need to put my attention on doing this thing at high quality so I feel really good about it, and I'm going to leave the phone alone. The other thing I'll say about the brain, every time you do this, 
you are taking, every time you do that, you are lowering the ability of your talent to be able to focus on what, what's in front of you. Every single time you do that, because you know what it's like to be in the zone. And when you're not, so every time you do this, you're out of the zone and you're not doing your best work. And that should be painful for you because you have, I know you, you want, like everybody else, you want to do your best work. I was in a restaurant a couple of nights ago, my wife and my three, our three sons, and my phone was, I, I, my phone rang. I don't take calls in restaurants. It's a pretty good one technology policy I have, or church. Right. And I turned my phone off and silent. I didn't turn it off, of course not, right? I just turned it on silent. And it kept beeping. My wife said, your phone keeps beeping. I kept checking and there was no messages. I was kind of annoyed. Well, it was the man next to me oh. and his phone like sort of beeped three times and I was sort of irritated. Why is he so important? I thought they was your mind, right? I mean, I can see it was a little bit introspection to say, I'm addicted to the validation that my phone gives me. And there's some recent research by one of my favorite uh, folks out there who uh, uh, did some research that when you're at a restaurant or anywhere or at work, even if, if your phone is over there even off, just the fact that you it's can present. see it yes. is lowering yeah. the quality of the work yeah, that it. you are doing. Yeah. It's really, it's really amazing. But we do it. get validation by the phone. It's do people need me and we have to get over ourselves. We have to realize either by pain or gain that the work that we're doing or what we're trying to accomplish or the person in front of me. So I see way too many executives where they're doing this. Yeah? yeah? <coughs> no, I can do two things at once. What do right, you need? Right. And it's a farce. I, it, it goes to another neurological absolute, which is oxytocin. Uh, which is young babies, when you know babies that haven't had physical touch you know, early on, they're damaged for life. And it's because oxytocin did not flow because they need human connection. And so when you are, some, you, you know, we talk about engagement all the time, there's some simple things here. When a, an executive is talking to somebody and they're doing this at the same time, they are subconsciously dissing the other person. They don't even know it, but lowering engagement. You if you want, if you feel the emotion of, in my role, I'm gonna help people get to the highest level of engagement and desire to do their best work, put your phone down and give them your full attention. Or finish your email, put it down, and do this. It's great advice. I mean, that is really practical advice. I heard from someone recently that they used to have a leader, and their leader was so intentional with her attention that when someone would walk in their, her office and ask her a question, she would not only stop doing what she was doing, she would take her glasses off, Correct. put them on the table, and like give you, it, was, it, was a, um, it may not have been a, a tactic, but it was a habit this leader had to remind herself to give you her attention, but also you knew you had her full, undistracted attention. Yeah, and when you think about, I always say, go to, you know, maybe not everybody, you, you think about sometimes your children, when you, when you sense that a child is in trouble, it's, and it could be a mother or father, it doesn't matter, but you'll go, Johnny, Johnny, what's wrong, Johnny? Johnny, what's, you're not going, hey, Johnny, what's wrong? You're like, you see a child in trouble or on their face or upset, you give them 150% of you because you, you want them to share with you. It's that same kind of, tr of, of attempt to connect um, with them that is just you know, critically, critically important. So it's I, another 
productivity tip. At Franklin Covey, that's a life tip, right? Yeah. At Franklin Covey, I used to have a leader. I've, I've been fortunate to have five or six phenomenal leaders in my 22-year career here. David Covey, one of Dr. Covey's you know, sons, who's one of my favorite leaders of all time, when I was the general manager of our Chicago region, he would come out every quarter for about two days and spend it with us. Strategy, staffing, setting goals, clearing the path. And he didn't answer his phone for two days. He was there in your office, no calls, no distractions. And it was kind of like a, a standard I couldn't match. And I can choose to match it, That's but it. I'll never forget that. It's an indelible life you know, kind of imprint on me that I was so important to him for those two days, he took no other calls. This is, this is the key to leadership. In, in the 21st century, you know, you can't beat people up to do the work. They have to, you, they have to want to. And sort of like the example I gave to you before, they would kill for this boss. Yeah. And, and so what are you doing to help that? And so it's the same thing. People want to feel listened to. That's the, they want to feel heard. And they don't even realize it sometimes when you're doing this and they're talking, they just think it's you know, standard operating procedure. Mm -hmm. But when you do, you put stuff down, you're in a meeting and you focus on them, you, you, would, you would just be amazed. I'll tell you what really does upset me. I, I, for years, I've never forgotten this example. I was at a restaurant and I saw there was a father with a child, young child, and you could tell it was a divorce situation. And the father probably had the child for dinner or for the weekend. And the kid was so happy and talking to the father. And on the other side of the table, you know, there was the father, you know, doing. And I, it just, it broke my heart because here this kid didn't even know it. I mean, he sort of knew it. I'm sure he knew it. But, it, it, and I'm thinking, God, what's going to happen over the years with that kid? Hmm. Because the father just couldn't possibly hear. And I just want to repeat what I said before. That kid was talking, an employee might be talking, the brain cannot do two things well at the same time. If you are doing that, you can't hear. And I see this in meetings it's all the, the time. It's the myth of multitasking. It is, multitasking is not a myth, it's a reality, and it's a skill in its own right. And you cannot do, if you wanted to, there's all kinds of research, that you cannot do anything well I see. while you are multitasking. That's the difference. That's right. the difference. So if you're talking to an employee and you're doing something else, you can do both at the same time, but you are not doing that well. And you're doing the damage if they feel like they're not. Yeah, that they're I feel not like I'm in therapy. I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying <laughs> this. <laughs> I have to do this myself too. I'm as, I can be as addicted yeah. as the next person. I, I sort of feel blessed that I get to keep teaching this back because it's hard. I love my phone. I love my technology. And even, but and and I've had to really think about, particularly over the last few years, what's most important to me, um, and really make some hard decisions and good decisions to make sure, particularly in my personal life, that I am. You know, you talk about values that I'm executing on when I'm home. I'm present when I'm home, because we work hard, right? We travel all over the world. And my thing was at home, I wasn't, I'd come home, but I sort of wasn't there. And I had to rethink, do I really want to be there? Hmm. And I went through a separation for five years and now we're back together hmm. um, with the commitment on my, I, I had over those five years, thanks to some of this and other things, it was who, who am I as a partner in life? Hmm. Um, and um, you know, now I've come back into it knowing that I have big rocks. Mm -hmm. I want. I know what my contribution is to my relationship, and um, what I need to do to make us both happiest 
even when I may not be in the mood to do it, hmm. but very present around it. It's inspiring, Corey. I mean, it sounds like you've achieved some level of clarifying your values, deliberate decision-making, being very intentional, and being present. Yes, and I'll tell you, five years ago, I remember thinking, is this, do I really want to be in this relationship? Could yeah. I write a role statement around this that made yeah. sense? Yeah. And that made me step back and yeah. rethink it. And I could only get back into it when I was easily able to say, this is who I want to be in the relationship and how I want us both mm. to feel about it. Exceptional advice. Thank you. Uh, final couple of minutes. Yes. You've taught the five choices hundreds of times. Hundreds. Around the world, dozens of countries. You're an expert. What are some of the key takeaways that you learn later, weeks, months, years later, that organizations that have invested in the two-day or one-day solution that's available in Franklin Covey's All Access Pass, what are some of the key consistent learnings you hear from uh, chief executives and from buyers about their investment in the five choices? That they have a language and a methodology that they can live and that people can speak up about when they feel like something has gone off track. Hmm. I think that's the main thing, because you know how it goes. It's like, oh, this was really great, and they started, and then it's sort of- It's a culture setter It's a, it, it is, you know, we call it a culture of productivity. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, along those lines, I think one of the things that they will say, and what we work on, is to say, we've become a culture of productivity, and we've gotten over ourselves about, around being a culture of busy. Because busy, is really become the badge of honor. Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, mm -hmm. no, I'm busier than you are, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. so, so when leaders are able to say, we are a culture of productivity, not just mm -hmm. a culture of busy, mm -hmm. you know, that's really important. When they say, oh, yeah, you know, we all work through the quadrants. We all speak through that. We all are cognizant of, am I throwing this person into quadrant one mm -hmm. and I need to change that behavior? Mm -hmm. So there's that. I also see a lot of the planning systems around weekly daily planning. You know, in the age of technology and digital and exchange, you know, calendaring and stuff like that, you know, a lot of organizations, I'd hear from people, oh, you know, even if I plan my calendar, they step on it, they put meetings in. The leadership being more aware of how everybody is calendaring um, so, so that, um, uh, you know, there is meeting time. Here's a very big one that I hear. One of the initial things that they've done is strip out, take a, you know, everybody goes to me, have you ever been to an unproductive meeting? Today? <laughs> so um, it's where they consciously, uh, and this was a, a number of organizations right at the top have done this that you would know, you, you know and love, where they have stopped and gotten intentional about and got off the, the hamster wheel of meetings, looked at their meetings and said, we don't need 30% of them, let's get them out. Some people don't even need to be at those meetings. And it's been like, woohoo, we don't have to go to all those meetings. And one uh, CEO told us it returns in the book, it returns six hours of time per week hmm. uh, to them, which is huge. Massive return. The yeah. other thing is at meetings default to one hour usually. Yeah. They changed right. it to 45 right. minutes. Huh. So, uh, you know, so those are you a couple of things. Gained an hour or two there. Yeah, just yeah. those, there's a million more, but those are a couple of the big things yeah. in or that we've heard from organizations that have gone through it. Corey, your energy and insight is contagious. Literally. Okay. I'm delighted you came today. I learned a lot. I, I've been thinking about my family all yeah. during this past 40 or so minutes and also how I can be more deliberate with my commitments to my boss, the chairman, and protect the team that I lead from urgencies and quad one. I hope you'll come back. You have several other books to talk about. I'd love to talk about project management at I'd some love point. To. 
tell dad his long lost son is not lost, <laughs> but here. I'm so delighted you came. Thank you. Corey, thank you so much. Have a great week. You and too. thank you all, and we'll see you next week. Hope you learned a few tips from Corey today, and we'll see you back next week. Thank you so much for joining us.